worship. We thank you for worship. We thank you for prayer. We thank you for the connection we have for you, with you. And we praise you for your gospel truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, back, back in the saddle. Glad to be here. Uh, it's a busy time. We do have the construction going on downstairs. Sorry for all the mess and the dust. Um, we just kind of gave up on getting rid of the dust. We're just going to live with it, you know. So, um, but we begin this four-week series today. Uh, and, and we're calling it Why Church Matters, what it is, why it's important, why are you here, why do you come do this, who are you, you know, what are we together, right? And we begin today by looking at 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 20, 21, and firstly, we see here that church matters because it represents Jesus. That's pretty simple, right? Christianity 101, church matters because it represents Jesus, but it says... So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Isn't that a nice sentiment? That's a nice thought, isn't it? Actually, let's say it's a nice truth, right? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love, I love that. Just love the words. I love the, the truth about that. I love the passion about it. And we see here that secondly, the church matters because it you know, represents Jesus. But secondly, in, in Scripture, when we come into this, our perspective changes towards the person of Jesus. Our perspective changes towards the person of Jesus. Paul began by saying, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And you did at once probably regard Christ in a different way. In the beginning of their interaction with Jesus, we we see how the apostles, the disciples, uh, may have regarded Jesus as just another teacher when he first called them, right? There, there were many uh, and varied rabbis and teachers they could have chosen to follow. But I want you to remember this. It's important to remember it, that they didn't choose him. He chose them. He came after them. This unique rabbi went out of his way to pursue and invite them into relationship with him. Right? God's always been pursuing people from the very beginning of time, making the first steps in relationship and reconciliation, and he's still doing that today. If we know Jesus at all, it's because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, right? 
before I knew Christ, and you probably have heard this before, I began reading the scriptures in Ecclesiastes, which resonated very strongly with me. I had tried everything to satisfy the, that God-shaped hole in my life. I didn't know, know at the time it was a God-shaped hole, but it, it only all ended in despair. It was a very difficult time for me. And that's what Ecclesiastes communicates, that everything under the sun, every earthly thing, divorced from God, everything under the sun dissatisfies this internal longing for salvation and for purpose, for for reconciliation, for life, for restoration. It, It dissatisfies. Pleasures and relationships and work pursued, devoid of God's reign over life, lead only to bondage and even despair in the end. And then I began reading Jesus' words in the Gospels, in that narrative. And I was confronted with a person like no other I had ever met. He saw right through me, right? He saw right through me. I couldn't lie to him, and I couldn't avoid his stare. Jesus saw my soul, right? He looked right into me. And although all that was unsettling for me at first, I found his words actually brought me comfort and life and a great challenge, although they convicted me at the same time of how I was living, what I was thinking, what I was doing with my life. And my view of Jesus at that moment changed as I read and I began to see him behind and in every word of the scriptures. It's been attributed to Augustine as saying, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. In other words, that means that the Old Testament's pregnant with and points to this coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And in the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as that Messiah, as that Savior. And I began to see that truth in the scriptures, which upset my world. It it changed my worldview. It changed the whole trajectory of my life, everything that I was driving towards. But I not only saw him in the scriptures, I began to see him in everything. In my backpacking trip, like I've, I've explained to you before, I just see everything out there in a different light as a result of Jesus. My perspective changed towards Jesus, not just as a good teacher, a moral guy, somebody that said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, that's a good thing to know, right? That it changed. He changed. He became to me God incarnate, God that stepped into my reality, Savior of the world, and the only one, the only one, and I said it very boldly and very clearly, the only one who could fill that longing that I had experienced and I had tried to fill with all the other stuff of life. The only one. The disciples and the apostles' view of Jesus changed as a result of his ministry, of his teaching, of his death, of his resurrection, his resurrection and all that stuff, his, his, uh, his ascension. And this was made full in Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, you could see that there was a very big difference in the disciples. The difference after Pentecost was significant, to say the least, right? They had suddenly been filled, focused, and fearless. Filled, focused, and fearless, just like that John Chow guy that went to that island. 
filled, focused, and fearless. Their purpose had become Jesus and his message of reconciliation to the world. Amen to that. They exist no longer for themselves or their pet causes or their desires or even their own safety. Rather, they now exist only for the kingdom reign of God in in people through Christ's message of reconciliation. In other words, they exist only for God's glory and God's mission. God's glory and God's mission, right? Simon, one of the disciples, was a zealot, if you don't know. And they were a radical sort of uh, religious political group fighting for emancipation from Rome, and they were willing to die for that. And a lot of them did. Some even call them the first terrorists. They were that passionate about their cause. And they began the great Jewish revolt of AD 66, ending with them being held up in Masada. If you remember that, that, that place up on top of that mountain, that it was very hard for uh, your enemy get, to get to you. And, and, and almost a thousand of them committed suicide in Masada rather than be captured by Rome. That's how passionate they were about that. But after Pentecost, all zeal dissipated, right? Or we might say their zeal was redirected in healthy ways towards Jesus and towards his purpose for their lives. Simon saw Christ now as central to everything, the answer to all the world's ills. His pet political cause was no longer as important as Christ's reign in the hearts of people. His zeal before meeting Jesus divided people. But now his zeal centered on bringing people into unity under Jesus. The only one, the only one who can truly establish peace between peoples because he changes hearts. It doesn't go unnoticed that Jesus chose Simon, a zealot, and Matthew, a tax collector, two men that would have been mortal enemies in regular life. But in Jesus, there was peace among those 12 because Jesus became the central thing. Simon's issue was one of what he would have deemed as justice before Christ. But the disciples realized that justice is the natural byproduct of the reign of Christ in a person's life. So justice as a concept was no no longer Simon's central pursuit. Rather, it was Jesus' reign among the nations. Jesus' reign in the hearts of people. Because when people come to Christ and and they start growing in Christ, they naturally become just people. They act that way. They regard others that way. In worldly logic, it seems right to fight for justice through the voting booth or overturning what we perceive as unjust systems, but it's never lasting, and it's not always that easy given the sinfulness of the human heart. You can't convince anybody. Lasting justice only happens when people give their lives to and they follow Jesus' teachings and commands as outlined by the scriptures. So justice ceases to be Simon's cause. Jesus becomes his cause since only, un, only unity under Christ brings true justice in the world. They knew salvation was only found in Jesus, not in a political or a religious system or a, or a better economy or any other cause. 
In Christ, the racial, political, and religious, and economic dividing walls of even gender all break down. Everything becomes equal. Because of who Jesus is, they viewed everyone in the light of him and his kingdom reign. I like to quote from Daniqua Washington uh, in her talk at the Vineyard Conference in Dayton where she said, the wickedness of sins cannot be stronger than the work of Jesus on the cross. Both abused and abuser are invited to the table of God's justice because the gospel goes farther than just protecting the abused. It goes into changing the heart of the abuser. That's where the gospel goes. That sentiment should be at the central of the justice movement. Given all, if all the attention is only on the abused, the gospel is all but lost. And we only become angry, hateful people. Because people aren't the enemy as someone on the other side of our issues. Rather, all of humanity has intrinsic value in Christ. All of them. Everyone. Hatred's no longer an option for the Christian. Their perspective changed to seeing only people who need Jesus. Because in him, every person finds their ultimate value, their fullness, their purpose in reconciliation with God. Christ's reign in the human heart creates a just mindset. And as a result, faulty systems change as a result of that. People focused on Jesus naturally begin through divine conviction to act in ways which are just and caring of others. So as a result of having proper perspective on Jesus, Paul says, so from now on, we regard no one, no one from a worldly point of view. We see people differently. In other words, we now see all people through Jesus' eyes. We now see all people through Jesus' eyes. Because of who Jesus is, He changes our perspective, not only on himself, but on people through his creational standards and his purpose for humankind. That's why Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is our ultimate call where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we, as Christians, we approach life to that end, that end. Right? The kingdom reign of Christ in the lives of people. That's our goal. The Christian may not be perfect. We still may be in the process of spiritual formation. But we find we, that we unify under Christ and his lordship in life. It's not about us. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my desires. It's about him. It's why Paul warned Timothy, as we saw uh, two weeks ago, of false teachers, because the gospel message and its purity are that important to uphold. It's why Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. 
Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Be careful what you choose to believe. Stick to the message, Paul is saying. Stick to the message even when the world around you vacillates between competing thoughts and competing philosophies. A kingdom reign perspective change of Jesus brings with it a change of perspective towards people and the world around us. Everything. That's why Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. You've changed. Allow it to happen. Submit yourself to it. As a new creation in Christ, we take on Jesus' view of life. He has full authority to command and lead us in life. He's supreme in all things, and he upholds all scriptural teaching, Old and New Testament alike. Remember he said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to erase all that. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Meaning when we incise what we don't like from the scriptures, when we pick and choose what we like and don't like on any issue of the scriptures, we're not acting in line with Jesus any longer. We're not. We're not regarding him as as supreme in all things when we do that. We rob him of his lordship. We place ourselves in the place of God when we do that. And in so doing, we're not living in the unity with church any longer, but actually we're working against it. Kicking against the goads, like Jesus said to Paul after knocking him off his horse. It's as if he's saying to us, like he said to Paul, in the crusade of your particular cause, you think you're fighting for me, but you're actually fighting against me. Jesus is the head. He's the bridegroom of the church. He establishes humble leadership to guard and lead in truth, and Scripture urges us to follow him in all ways. Galatians chapter 3 says this about us. So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've put him on. Therefore, there is no Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is there male or female. Now, does he mean that like our, our gender gets erased? No. He means the, that we were regarded in equal value in Christ. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, he says. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink, even so to the body is not made up of one part but of many. We are dressed out in Jesus, clothed in Jesus. One of many parts representing Jesus as a whole, as a body. And in that, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, black or white, male or female. All those issues, all those barriers fall away since we're all one in Jesus. So men value women, but women also value men. 
Rich value poor, but poor also value rich. White values black, but black also values white. That's the gospel. No cultural, political, or economic boundaries in Jesus. A naturally diverse group of peoples representing all nations, but diversity is not our goal. It's not our goal. Jesus is our goal. All spiritual children of Abraham equally receiving the promises of God. If we want to fight against racism or hatred of any people group, then we simply go about the business of following Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, bringing people into the light of Christ, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. But there's the rub, isn't it? There's the rub. Because Jesus gets to define our purpose and our direction and what's life-giving and what's healthy and what's good for everybody, good for the whole world, and some simply don't want to submit their life to his direction. That's, that's it. Some say no. But those of us who do submit, we don't pervert the gospel to the point of our sinful brokenness where our sinful brokenness goes unchallenged. I'm not allowed to do that. Let me say that twice. We don't pervert the gospel to the point our sinful brokenness goes unchallenged. Jesus challenges me in my sinfulness. We come to Jesus realizing our sinful brokenness is to be healed and removed by Jesus. Our politics and our social status don't trump our biblical worldview. We're all one in Jesus. We don't just talk unity like children playing house, claiming Jesus, loosely attending church, all the while looking into various, you know, like holding various beliefs that are contrary to the teachings and commands of Jesus. That's not what we do as Christians. Rather, we sacrifice all of our wrong attitudes, all of our wrong choices, all of our wrong behaviors at the cross. We lay them all down at the foot of the cross and we turn to follow Jesus in obedience. Our hearts and minds get transformed to Jesus' standards as true life in all areas and we live out of that. You remember I quoted Phil Strout two weeks ago and part of it, what, he, what I quoted, he said, we pivot on God's promises and God's commands. We've got one foot always rooted in the scriptures, always rooted in the promises of God, always rooted in the commands of Christ. Even though we are walking forward, taking the gospel places, we pivot on God's promises and God's commands. Not Jason's, not leadership's here. Our job is just to bring those things to light, to, to remind us. We are a diverse people, unified under Christ. You can go worship anywhere in the world with other Christians, and you will find that it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. We're all learning to obey his teaching and his commands. And when we're baptized, we say to the world, we say to everybody around us, I'm one of his. I'm part of his body, which is the glorious church on earth, working in unity with its convictions derived from the scriptures, not from culture and not even from how I feel is correct and what I feel is correct in life. Since feelings and worldly philosophies aren't necessarily factual, to trust in our own ability 
to discern truth without God's lead in all matters of life is dangerous to ourselves, dangerous to the church, and dangerous to the world around us, even if they disagree with us. The culture speak and group think, which has always governed the world, always governed various cultures, drives against the life-giving, healthy holiness and purity which Scripture directs us towards. The Christian needs to go back to the Scriptures, like Phil Strout said, realizing, as it says in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So our perspective on Jesus shifts, understanding, as Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Amen. As a matter of fact, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, listen to this carefully, in Christ you are justified before the Father. You are justified. You are made right. You are made new. You are reconciled with God. You are no longer under wrath because of Jesus. You are loved children of your heavenly Father. And as a result, our perspective on all people changes, and we don't regard them in a worldly matter any longer but as valued beings, as the crown of creation, needing reconciliation with God as experienced ourselves. And so, like Paul says, we become ambassadors of Christ who've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You have a purpose. Ambassadors of Christ who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You've been given it. Remember, Jesus modeled ministry. He modeled ministry. He opened the door for it in his willingness to suffer for the world. And he empowered us to this end with the scriptures, with his church, and with his spirit. And he's handed over this ministry of reconciliation to the local church to reach all people groups of the world with Christ's message. That's our purpose. So we represent Jesus in how we view him, his church, and other people who need him still. Everything is measured off of this. Everything. And our unity is based on the authoritative, trustworthy word of God and the foundational beliefs of the Christian church as derived from the scriptures. Nothing else. Nothing else. When we can understand passages like Ephesians chapter 4 where it says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, then... And only then can we live out our purpose as found in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit and teaching them to obey all of Jesus' commands. A little intense this morning, huh? That's what backpacking does to me. In conclusion, the church matters because it represents Jesus. The church matters because it represents Jesus. You represent Jesus. 
We, together, in unity, represent Jesus. The scriptures change our perspective on who Jesus is, right? As God incarnate, who enters our reality, who suffers for us, who dies for us, and who rises from the grave for us, bringing healing and salvation and life to anyone who might receive him. And number three, Jesus changes our perspective on all peoples of the world. Anybody that's around you, even if you have feelings of disdain towards them, you have to start looking at them in a different light. And all of our causes and all of our desires fold into and get reprioritized in Jesus and his calling on our lives. He becomes central in all relationships around us. We're transformed by his person and by his word to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? We're no longer divisive. We don't want to be divisive. All barriers fall in Christ as we invite people into the unity of his body, the church, where only true peace can, and, and unity can really be found. The church is glorious. Despite all its faults and mistakes over history, I, I, I confessed to, some, uh, to leadership the other night, I'm like, you know, I've been guilty of maligning and bad-mouthing the church. The church is beautiful. It is Christ's bride. And number four, in the end, this all says to all of us that we are ambassadors of Christ given this ministry of reconciliation. What a great task. Verse 20, what a great task. God's still going out of his way to pursue people, using the church to reconcile the world to himself in Christ And remember, the disciples didn't pursue Jesus. He pursued them. Some of them were fishing or tax collecting or sitting under a tree. And Jesus rolls up and says, follow me. Follow me. You are the righteousness of God due to Jesus' redemptive work on the cross and his conquering of the grave. You are treasured. You are valued. You are entrusted with the very words of God. And you are called to the task of speaking and living this out so that others can have the freedom in Jesus too that you've already experienced. So the question for us today is, like the disciples after Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, are you filled and are you focused and are you fearless for Jesus? Or maybe I should use courageous for Jesus, but it wasn't enough. Because you can still feel fearful when you're doing ministry. But pushing through that fear is courage. We're going to talk about that next week. Thanks, Dave. I gave you all a three-by-five card four weeks ago, four Sundays ago, to write down three people that you could be praying for and influencing towards Jesus. And I hope you're doing that. I hope you're praying for those people. Discipling other Christians deeper into their purpose for him, but also, uh, you know, uh, sharing your faith with others. Because your faith will always be dry until you start to give it away. Until you start to act on the promise. Until you start to act on your purpose. People will not naturally pursue Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. They're not naturally saying, where is Jesus? You know? They're not. I was listening to, Rus- what's his name, Russell Brand? Brand? Or something like that. No, really intelligent guy. But he, he, he misses the point. Jesus isn't just fuzzy love. 
And uh, somebody was challenging him that he has to have the lordship of Christ, not just the love of Jesus in his life. People don't naturally pursue Jesus. Sometimes you have to roll up in their lives while they're working or while they're sitting at a bar or while they're playing with the kids at the park or while they're standing around on the sidewalk talking with other neighbors. So will you be filled, focused, and fearless to fulfill your purpose and bringing that message of reconciliation to them somehow, some way? Not getting caught up in all the hype of current issues, but placing your focus on Jesus' supremacy in life and your call as his ambassador to the people around you. Don't talk to him about border walls and immigrant children and the election and Donald Trump and Joe Biden or all the other hot-button issues or causes out there. Talk to them about life. Be genuinely interested in them. Ask them questions. Offer to pray for them. And if all you can muster is, hey, would you like to come to church with me? I think you might really enjoy it. You've gone farther than most Christians have gone. If you can ask that one question, you've gone a lot farther than most. Do something. That's the takeaway. Do something, right? Do one thing this week towards influencing somebody towards Jesus, right? And I don't just mean praying for others behind closed doors. Definitely do that all the time, but that's the safe one, right? Actually do and say something. Do and say something to somebody about this wonderful truth of Jesus' salvation and freedom in life. I was going to wait till next week, but I just want to end with a little story. Chuck and Christy, sorry. We're at a bar recently. They're big drinkers. No, I'm just kidding. No, they're not. I'm just joking. No, uh, they were at a bar and they were sitting next to a guy who had led this couple on a fly fishing trip who were sitting next to him. And uh, they, they started engaging him in conversation. Now, let me preface by saying Chuck and Christy, it makes them nervous to pray out loud for people, right? What did I say? I mean, most of us feel that way, right? Especially when you're out in a public place in a crowded bar. And he started telling the story about how he, uh, this guy might lose his daughter in a custody battle. So Christy sitting here, Chuck's here, and then the guy's sitting here. Christy leans over without, like, just in a split second says, can we pray for you right now? But what she really meant was, can Chuck pray for you right now? Right? <laughs> and they did. And they huddled. And the other couple watched, and everybody else in the bar watched, and they prayed. And the man was bawling by the end of it. Do something. Take a risk. (laughs) Right? Who knows what's going to happen? You might get punched in the face. Is it worth a black eye? God bless you. Yes, it is. It is. Jesus is worth the black eye. Do it with respect. Do it with love. Do it with kindness. Do it with gentility but do it nonetheless. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all creation. From Genesis to Revelation, we see your truth in the scriptures. We see your your coming about in the Old Testament and your revelation in the New. And we thank you that you have walked this out with us, that you're patient with your people. And we know that sometimes we don't get it. And we know that we do sometimes act in wrong ways. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would convict our thinking, arrest it, arrest it, massage it, turn it. I know 
me speaking up here is not going to make a difference unless your spirit injects that into people's hearts. We pray that everything that is Jason would fall away and everything that would, is, is Jesus would rise to the forefront of our thinking. That you would love us enough to transform us into your character, transform us into your thinking, transform us into your purpose, and, and give us the courage to walk through our fears to get there. And I don't know who's praying for us this morning. There you go. <laughs>